Welcome to the State of Business with the Ohio Society of CPAs. I'm Jessica Salerno-Shoemaker, Senior Content Manager at OSCPA, and this is the show where we bring you the latest news impacting the business and accounting world from top experts. In the last episode of the State of Business podcast for 2022, we're covering some of the top episodes in its history. Some of the most popular episodes from the podcast have covered a wide range of topics, a testament to the diverse and multi-layered accounting profession. These topics have included personal stories from CPAs, including a CPA who found herself under pressure to cross ethical standards and ended up in prison. This is from Helen Sharkey. The first year that I was uh, at Dynagy, I did managerial reporting. And what that entailed was analyzing actual results to plan. And I kept finding myself over and over again, having to go up to the trade floor to ask for an explanation. And at the time, I really knew very little about trading. And uh, I, don't, I found that a lot of people didn't understand the trading business at the time. So I quickly realized that if I wanted to further my career, I really needed to to truly understand the trading business. So after a year in managerial reporting, I moved into a compliance function in risk control where we had oversight over the traders in terms of making sure that they were staying within their designated limits, reporting anything that fell outside of those limits. And that's where I really began to learn the nuts and bolts of the energy trading business. And that's what eventually led me to uh, the consulting role I took, uh, which was really set up to go out with these deal makers as they were putting these deals together to make sure that they were structuring their deals to be able to take advantage of mark-to-market accounting, which was commonly or the used accounting method for the trading business. And that's really what I think people need to understand is that these these dilemmas, these um, things don't just happen overnight. It's a very slow process. And it, it starts with standards and lines being crossed. And once that first line is crossed by the company or your coworker or your boss, once that first line is crossed, then it accelerates the speed of the demise of standards within the company. What, what would you say was the first line for you? When, we, when I first got assigned to this transaction, very early on, We were getting a lot of pressure from the bank to do things that really just didn't make logical sense to me. You know, my background was more on the analytical side and not on the technical side in terms of the EITFs and the FASBs and all of that, but just logical sense, just, you know, very basic accounting 101 things that we were being asked to do or told by the banks that our competitors were doing, and they were specifically talking about Enron, it it, it made me very uncomfortable. Now, early on, on the transaction, we weren't crossing those lines. 
but after months and months and months of working on the deal, trying to get this deal closed and a tremendous pressure to get it closed, when we went to New York and it was, you know, the 11th hour, that's when lines started getting crossed. People really lost perspective on the big picture and we're really focused on getting the deal done come hell or high water. And how old were you when this was happening? I was 27, 28 years old at the time. So pretty young in my career. I mean, I'd had my three years of public accounting, um, but fairly young at the time. Okay. And do you think kind of being newer, younger in your career kind of contributed to maybe feeling those pressures to, like you mentioned, kind of cross that first line? I think, you know, and I, I, I don't know if it's youth um, or just in general, when you work with people who have much more experience than you, who are well-seasoned, very well-respected, it is intimidating. Um, and there are very few people that at, at the age of 28 with, you know, four or five years of experience going into a group that's totally new, a completely different job would feel comfortable challenging people who have a decade or more of experience over them, especially mm-hmm. The, the things that we're talking about are, are, are very uh, ambiguous. You don't have an example deal to go to to say, oh, this is how it was done before. When you're in new territory and you're new to a job, you're new to um, the profession, it, it, it is very hard to, to try to figure out what part of this is me not knowing because I'm inexperienced and what part of this is I don't like this because it's unethical and we're going to cross lines here. I'm guessing probably a lot of younger professionals uh, can relate to that perspective because you obviously want to do the best job you can do and be confident in your opinions and in the things that you're completing. But then there always sort of is that element of, well, I don't know everything. There are a lot of people around me who know a lot more. So you kind of have to walk that line between doing the best you can while also sort of deferring to their judgment. Correct. But I will say this, and this is hindsight and, you know, me almost 20 years later, that I like to tell people going into their careers that when you go work for a company, you you should feel comfortable enough to ask when you don't understand why something is being done this way. You should be allowed to get clarity if something is, you're uncomfortable about it. Perhaps you're uncomfortable because you just don't fully understand the big picture. We're often tasked to work on one part of a bigger deal. But if you're asking those questions of your employer and they're not trying to address those concerns, and they're trying to kind of sweep you under the rug and move on with it, you should be asking yourself whether or not you really want to be working for that company. Oh, absolutely. And I'm guessing that uh, being able to ask those questions is something at the time you did not feel comfortable with. Yes and no. I, I think that the questions were asked over and over again. We had so many iterations of this particular transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and we 
so many changes in direction, not just internally, but even from our own auditors, there came a point where I felt like no matter what I did, I, I was going to get overruled. Who am I? You know, I'm low man on the totem pole, right? Right. These people, I'm saying, yeah, this doesn't sound right. But then again, I'm getting this commentary from all these other people that actually this is why this is working this way and this is how it's done in the real world. So, i.e., go away, Helen, and, you know, shut your mouth. So, um, so it was, it was a really a, a different time. Again, I think when you're in an industry that's relatively new and complex and not a lot of people understand it, those are the dangers. Career management also proved popular as two of the top episodes covered building your brand and managing difficult employees. The latter stressed the importance of speaking to a difficult employee with an open mind and an action plan that makes sense for the individual and the organization. This is what Eileen Connor, Human Resources Director at Bober Marquis Fedorovich had to say. Uh, people are people. And so whether we like it or not, we often bring everything about us to the workplace. So um, a difficult employee can be uh, someone who is, you know, causing difficulties because of stuff that is happening outside of the workplace, but also, and, and oftentimes, hopefully it's, it's because of things going on in the workplace. Definitely. And I think difficult, depending on your perspective, could mean a lot of different things, you know, and maybe it means that um, this employee doesn't get along with their coworkers. Maybe they're perpetually late or seem to disregard, you know, other um, commonly accepted rules throughout the office. Uh, depending on, you know, what difficult means to your situation, when is the time to, you know, speak with the employee about their behavior? Well, first and foremost, let me let me start by saying you're absolutely right that there's a lot of a lot of ways we could interpret difficult. As an HR professional in general, most of the time, I think my experience has been that difficult employees fall somewhere on this continuum of willing and ability. So willingness and ability. And most often, um, the good news is, is that most employees in my, again, in my experience, I can really only speak to mine, are willing, they're just not able. So that could be a skill issue, that could be a mismatch in qualifications when hired for the job, um, could be any, any number of things that a, a person is unable to do something, but they may be very willing. So probably the first step for a manager of a difficult employee is to identify what that looks like. Is this something that is because they are unable or unwilling to do it? And if for reason, what are those reasons, right? So if we use the example of an employee who's late all the time, they may be very willing to be on time, but there might be something that is happening outside of the workplace that is preventing that from happening. Um, for another late employee, it could just be because they have no you know, they're, they're no longer willing. So I'm hope, I hope that's making a little bit of sense, but, um, but in terms of the willingness, it often does come and is related to an employee's engagement with the organization. Um, and it is, it really is important to identify whether it is a matter of unwillingness or an inability to do the job um, and, or that is what's creating the quote unquote difficulty. 
because like you mentioned with the late example, you don't necessarily know uh, maybe the reasons behind someone's action. So it's a good, it sounds like it's a good um, reminder to kind of check in with them and investigate a little bit further, you know, before you jump to conclusions and think, you know, they're just late because they don't care about the job. When I would always suggest immediate, as close to the behavior as possible is your best option for changing the behavior. So allowing somebody to be late for four months before you actually say something just challenges your credibility as a leader and also suggests to the employee that it's not really that important. Um, so as close to the behavior that you are trying to change is when you need to get the constructive dialogue happening with the employee. I would suggest the same is true on the flip side for when you wanna give positive recognition and reinforcement as close to the behavior as possible. You know, the credibility of someone as a leader, especially when they're managing um, other staff. And it, it makes me wonder, do you have any advice for maybe those who are working on managing a difficult employee, but realize that they have not maybe done a great job of it thus far? Like you mentioned, maybe they have let someone come in late for four months and now they're thinking, okay, now I need to talk with them. How, how should people kind of approach this situation when they realize that they do have a difficult employee and so far they haven't done a great job of working with them on their behavior? I would suggest that if a manager is aware that they may have also dropped the ball, I think some level of ownership is, is needed in the discussion with the difficult employee that says, this is something I perhaps should have brought to you months ago. Um, however, for whatever reasons, et cetera, I wanted to see if you, your behavior was going to change. I wanted to be flexible with you. I, I think it's important for a manager to own that. And other times it can be, it can be a sensitive piece because you also don't want the manager to suggest that um, they're necessarily they've done something wrong. And it could be because some difficult employees can run with that. Um, I think for the most part though, again, and I can really only speak to my experience, um, when a manager approaches something, even if they were late in coming to the party, I think owning that, acknowledging it, and then moving on to the behavior discussion is the most important thing. So, so don't spend an awful lot of time talking about how you as the manager didn't do what you were supposed to do. The most important thing is to own it and move right into the behavior that you're expecting from the employee or what you're seeing in terms of their performance not matching what your expectations are. Um, I think humility is important uh, for managers. And I also think, again, coming to these discussions with an open mind is really important as well. My experience has also seen that sometimes managers get mad, right? And, and, and that's certainly understandable, especially if they've had to deal with a difficult employee for a while. But, but we're talking about people. And so the most effective, the most effective discussion you're going to have with a difficult employee is where you come with, with this idea of an open mind and the ability to help both the employee and the organization versus anger, um, rudeness. None, none of that ever works. None of that works ever. Another one of our top episodes covered popular social security questions. Here's what Robert Fenn, a public affairs specialist at the Social Security Administration, says about the most popular questions. Um, many times, just a simple 
question is, is when can I get my money? As Mr. Smith just mentioned, um, knowing that that payment will be made in uh, for SSI beneficiaries in December, December 30th, for a Social Security retirement disability, that's gonna be in January. And then commonly what they do is, um, individuals will take their percentage, 5.9%, and then they will add it to their current um, bank deposit amount for Social Security. And then they'll say, hmm, I am waiting to find out, is this number correct? Well, as Mr. Smith had mentioned, if an individual has a My Social Security account, we have sent notifications to their My Social Security uh, message center. So that information was actually, we released this uh, October 13th, I believe the date was, don't quote me on that, but I believe it was around October 13th, but then the 14th, 15th, and 16th, we were sending notifications out so individuals know that they don't have to call the local social security office to make sure or to find out what their dollar amount will be. And instead, they can go to our website, socialsecurity.gov, uh, very innocent plugs that we're giving you each time here, and then they can look into their uh, message center through the My Social Security portal, and they will see their dollar amount. So they don't have to worry about, you know, finding out what the exact amount is going to be. We're going to tell them. So that's one of the more common questions that we do receive is how much is going to be and when we're going to receive it. And I know that we mentioned that there are a ton of great resources on socialsecurity.gov. If there's someone who is approaching their uh, retirement age and they're not really sure to get started or uh, where to start looking or understanding you know, their, their social security benefits, how would you suggest that they uh, go about that? Sure. Uh, this is uh, Brandon Smith again. I'll I'll jump in. We uh, sort of like a tag team. So Rob is sort of tagging me in. People have a couple. Of, yeah, people have a a couple of options to go. I, I'd say, you know, first off, as much as they can, kind of make sure that they have you know their information readily available. And they may say, well, what information? Once again, they can pull this up on our website, socialsecurity.gov. You know, what what do I need to have? when I want to start the process of applying for benefits. Well, it's information that we would, you know, hope would be uh, at your fingertips or you, you would know it off the top of your head. You know, very simply, you need to know your social security number. It would help if possible if you know your marital information. So if you are married or were married, your spouse's name or ex-spouse or, or late spouse's, his or her, their names, social security number, dates and locations of the marriages. And if they ended when and, and, and how did the marriage ended. If you have minor children or disabled adult children, their names and social security numbers if possible. Um, of course, you're routing an account number for direct deposit purposes. What are your work plans? You know, how much money do you expect to make this year if you're gonna continue to work? If you're not gonna continue to work, when do you anticipate slowing down or, or leaving your employer? Um, were you ever in the military? Did you ever work for the railroad industry? Did you ever work outside the United States? Are you now or will you ever get benefits from a job in which you didn't pay into Social Security? All of this is to make sure that we are uncovering all the potential avenues of benefit eligibility for you, possibly on your record or maybe someone else's record, or if someone else may potentially be eligible for benefits on your work record. 
you can you know, call our toll-free national number, 1-800-772-1213. You can always pull up information free of charge on our website, socialsecurity.gov. Uh, this may be somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but you, you really want to be careful when you're talking to your friends and family regarding their circumstances uh, with Social Security, because everyone's situation is, is, is different. Your friend may be giving you the, the truth from his or her, their perspective, but their situation could be totally different. Maybe they were married multiple times. Maybe they were, uh, they were never married. Maybe they've got children. Maybe they were disabled. So while the information they're giving you is correct, it's correct through the lens of their reality and not necessarily yours. Um, one big thing I wanted to make mention, our services are free of charge. Um, Social Security is not going to ask for advanced payments for our services. You're not going to send us money, you know, via wire transfers, cryptocurrency, gift cards. Please understand that that just isn't how we operate. So we really want people to avoid falling victim to fraudulent calls and internet phishing schemes. Um, you know, no reputable social security employee, no reputable government agency or company is going to you know, demand payment because your social security number was, you know, used in the commitment of a crime or anything like that. We're not going to ask for big box store gift cards to be read off to us. So just, just be really leery if someone is asking for payment in, in regards to giving you social security related information, because you can do all that free of charge via the Social Security Administration. If you're interested in listening to any of these episodes in full, the link is in our show notes. The state of business will look different in 2023 as we're moving to producing seasons of episodes that will focus on diving deep into one topic area. Look for new episodes in the spring. And as always, thank you for listening.